right, so Acts chapter 15. If, if we hit the rewind button a little bit to kind of catch us up to speed in terms of context, if you're coming in for the first time or maybe you've been out for a couple of weeks, chapter 13 and beyond begins to tell the story of Paul's missionary journeys, the very journeys mapped out in the back of most of our Bibles. If you were around a few weeks ago, you might recall that first crazy journey with, with all of its ups and downs, uh, the conversion of Sergius Paulus, the most noble official on the land of Cyprus, the striking blind of Elymas the magician who tried to derail the advancement of the gospel, Paul's preaching in the Jewish synagogues, reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the healing of the lame man in Lustra, followed by not only a, a sermon on creation and common grace pointing people to Jesus, but also a near-death experience for the, the apostle Paul, and ultimately the planting and strengthening of churches throughout the province of Galatia as the nations are exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Going back to last week, it's in the wake of that first missionary journey that the, the threat of false teaching comes into the picture of the book of Acts as a number of apostles and, and elders are compelled to gather in Jerusalem for, for what's the, the, become the first recorded ecumenical council in the history of the New Testament church, essentially, prior to, to all of those famous councils that maybe you've heard about if you've read a church history book, to, to contend for the very purity and essence of the gospel message in the wake of some seeking to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. To make a long story short, the council doubles down on the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And the church in Antioch, one of the many dealing with this thread of false teaching, rejoices. And it's in the wake of their rejoicing that Paul and Barnabas decide to stick around the city of Antioch doing a little preaching and teaching. And we're told, picking up the story where we left off last week, chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Would have been Roughly a year or so since that first missionary journey, since those churches had been planted, and, and the best Paul has to go off of, he and, and his band of brothers, is the occasional letter that's coming in to Antioch from those churches that have been planted. And so you can just imagine the questions running through Paul's mind. Are these infant churches living in unity or has division already managed to set in? Are they contending for, for the one gospel or are they giving themselves over to distortions of truth? Some of the things that Paul had just dealt with in Antioch with the Jerusalem council. How, how are the elders holding up? Are they already ready to abandon ship? Are they being strengthened and encouraged? Are, are there any threats of persecution, maybe even martyrdom that these churches are dealing with? And so in light of the passing of time and, and the questions swirling around in Paul's mind, he determines that it would be good to go and, and revisit those churches that were planted on that first missionary journey. And so we're told in verse 37 of chapter 15, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Right in the heart of that first missionary journey, if you recall Acts chapter 13, John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, was compelled to walk away from the team. Why? We're not told. Many scholars believe that he walked away due to homesickness, maybe fear that the honeymoon part of the, the journey had passed and, and Things became more treacherous. 
Whatever his reason for leaving, Paul apparently doesn't trust that John Mark won't abandon the team again. Barnabas, on the other hand, encourager that he is, wants to give John Mark another chance. And so we're told that there arose a sharp disagreement, right? This is not just some petty quarrel that's unfolding here in the book of Acts. Luke is very intentional to expose human weakness and flaws in this book of the Bible so that Jesus alone gets the glory. The the Greek word from which we get the phrase sharp disagreement, it carries with it the idea of provoking, which literally jabs or cuts someone so that they must respond. It's a serious dispute. And not only is it serious, it's public. It's so public that we're talking about it 2,000 years later. So you might ask, who's in the wrong here? Well, on the one hand, Paul would go on to write much of the New Testament. That gives him a little bit of street cred, right? In addition, Barnabas disappears from the story of Acts altogether from this point on as we follow the apostle Paul for the remainder of the book. You know, maybe Paul knows what's at stake here in the spreading of the gospel to the end of the earth and he's not willing to take flight risks along for the journey this time. On the other hand, Barnabas throughout the book of Acts has over and over and over again been described as an encourager, one who sees the best in people, including the apostle Paul himself at one point. He's a man of second chances. Maybe his desire to give his cousin another Another chance exposes a lack of grace in the Apostle Paul. Maybe there's even an element of difficulty for Paul in forgiving John Mark of his past failures. Yeah, Paul wrote much of the New Testament, but Paul would go on to describe himself as the chief of sinners, a sinner saved, a stumbling saint, as we sing in this place from time to time. In the end, we, we just don't know. I like the way Kent Hughes says it in his commentary. This resonates with me. He says, no one can rightly blame Barnabas for wanting to give his cousin a second chance, nor can we fault Paul for fearing to trust him again. Our judgment goes with Paul, but our hearts go with Barnabas. What we do know is that there's a lack of resolution, basically two men agreeing to disagree. Let me stop here for a second and say, let the record show that even some of the greatest leaders in church history were less than perfect. In the words of one scholar that I read this week, the best of men are men at best. There is no perfect pastor. There is no perfect Christian in the sense that we're not the glorified versions of ourselves yet. There is a perfect Christ, which is why I'm so adamant that this thing that we're doing be about pointing to to Jesus Christ, the only one who will never fail his church. We're told that that Barnabas and John Mark head out in one direction. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas, Paul's new wingman, head out in another direction, which marks the last time that we'll see Barnabas in the book of Acts. It really is a sad moment in the unfolding story of the New Testament church, but at the same time, it's also one of the most encouraging episodes in seeing both the sovereignty and grace of God. That without affirming the fault of either of the men involved, we can be encouraged to know that God works the sharp disagreement of these two men, these two imperfect men for good as the gospel now begins to go forth through two different missionary teams. And we can also be encouraged by God's grace at work in John Mark's life individually because it's John Mark who would later bring comfort to the apostle Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. And it's also John Mark whom Paul would declare to be useful to him in his final stretch of ministry. That as Derek Thomas puts it in his commentary on Acts, despite human disagreements, God's work still goes forward. 
Even in church divisions and strife, God overrules our folly and sin to promote his work. This is not to excuse our culpability, he says. Rather, it is to evoke gratitude for the mercy and kindness of God. He brings about good from the worst of circumstances. He beautifies the church despite what we do in order that Christ might be glorified. That's the story of the book of Acts, right? Obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, even the saints functioning as obstacles in this moment, and yet God overcomes imperfect men to see the gospel advanced all the more. Barnabas and John Mark sail away to the island of Cyprus. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas basically travel the route of Paul's first missionary journey in the opposite direction. Here's the map up on the screen. You can kind of trace it in red arrows up to the, the far right, Antioch, as they leave. And we'll We'll make our way with them through Paul's hometown of Tarsus and then up through some of those cities that we saw on the first missionary journey, Derby and Lustra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. And eventually by the time we're done this morning, and I promise we will get out in time for lunch, but believe it or not, we're gonna be on the far top left side of that map up in Philippi as the gospel makes its way to European soil. This is a crazy, crazy journey that we're about to, to venture on. If, if you were sitting in your seat last week going, man, can we get out of this People versus O.J. Simpson episode and get back on the road and see some cool things unfold? It's about to happen. Buckle your seatbelt. There's going to be some crazy, incredible episodes of, of God's power and grace on display in these chapters to come. It begins in chapter 15, verse 41, where we're told, and he, Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And Paul came also to Derby. And to Lustra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lustra and Iconium, and Paul wanted to, uh, Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem council's verdict. And so we're told, verse five of chapter 16, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. This is the, if you do watch television shows, be it Netflix, Hulu, whatever, you know, your, pick your poison. There are those those episodes and moments where new characters are introduced and you're like, am I gonna like this guy, this girl? You know, how are they gonna grow on me? Or, or maybe they're likable from the beginning and you're like, ah, oh, this makes the show, you know, so much better from this point on. Maybe even talk about shows, looking back at the past, like season two of that show when Timmy showed up and, you know, like, man, I love Timmy, you know? And like, that's, that, those characters tend to, to fuel us at times. Well, this is the beginning of the church history-shaping relationship between Paul and Timothy, a relationship that would last for the remainder of Paul's life. Timothy is either mentioned or addressed in, in at least 10 of Paul's New Testament letters. That's what I counted this week. He's the recipient of Paul's final writing. So who am I gonna write to as I'm reaching my final moments of life here on planet Earth? Young Timothy. Timothy would go on to become like a son to Paul, a fellow soldier in the trenches of ministry, a future pastor in the church, uh, of the church in Ephesus. You, you have to wonder, going back to Paul's first missionary journey, if Timothy became a follower of Jesus when Paul visited Lustra the first time, like maybe he saw the apostle Paul willing to face martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ as the crowds tried to stone Paul to death. 
Like, who knows what kind of impact that would have on Timothy and his entire family, right? It's wild to think that the attempted martyrdom of the apostle Paul might have given rise not only to a, a family coming to faith, but the equipping of a future missionary and pastor. In terms of background, we're told that Timothy was the son of a Gentile dad and a Jewish mom, which meant that culturally he was considered Jewish. And so with Timothy, you have a, a young Jewish boy who's never been circumcised, probably due to the influence of his unbelieving dad. And so Paul determines that something's gotta be done about that, particularly if Timothy's gonna join up with him on this missionary journey. Which brings up a question, I think, going back to last week, is Paul being hypocritical here? I mean, we, we just came out of that whole Jerusalem council moment where the church determined and established this verdict, no, we're not adding to the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus circumcision or any sort of you know, uh, adherence to the Mosaic law that saves anyone. It's Christ alone. What is Paul doing here? Well, we're told in verse four that at every stop on this journey, Paul and his team present the verdict of the Jerusalem council the verdict declaring that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, that salvation is in fact by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So, so what's the deal with Timothy? Like if this isn't necessary, we shouldn't be doing this, right? What an awkward moment. Going back to last week, if you remember that list of requirements placed upon the Gentiles by the Jerusalem council, which included things like abstaining from blood and things polluted by idols, it seems to me that Paul might be doing what the Jerusalem council did there in establishing that list of Gentile expectations. That in the same way that the Gentiles avoiding things polluted by idols is an act of brotherly love and missional sensitivity, to use that language of last week's sermon, so having Timothy circumcised is an act of brotherly love and missional sensitivity. It seems to be an effort to keep the Jewish crowds on this missionary journey from arguing about non-essentials to keep the gospel as the only stumbling block of offense. And so Timothy goes under the knife. I thought about stopping here with an application point and going, how far would you go for the mission of the church? You know, like, and I kind of just did. Um, <laughs> Timothy goes under the knife for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and joins Paul and his band of brothers on this journey. And they take the letter from the Jerusalem council to every city on the tour. And we're told in verse six, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we stop there, it's an indication that Luke has just come along for the ride. Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love this. Paul and company make their plans and the Lord throws those plans out the window for his glory and they're good. Anybody experience that? You, you create a plan for your life and then God uh, like an adolescent boy crumbles it up into a ball and just tosses it in the wastebasket and says, I got this. Proverbs 16, nine, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And he does so by forbidding and affirming. We're told having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, 
We don't know what that means. Maybe a, a spirit-prompted lack of peace among these men. Maybe the spirit working through various circumstances to keep them out of certain areas. We just don't know. Not just forbidding, though, affirming by way of a supernatural occurrence. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night that God will establish our steps one way or another. I, I, love, what, I love what happens in the wake of Paul's vision. Notice that it says that they sought to go into Macedonia immediately, but not before concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see that? It would have been very easy for Paul to say, got a vision, guys. God told me we need to go to Macedonia. Meeting adjourned. But that's not what happens. The Greek word translated concluding in verse 10 means to deliberately consider that even with a powerful vision from God, a multitude of Christ followers come together to deliberately consider the transpiring events. That there's wisdom in bringing decisions regarding God's will for our lives to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we have a strong subjective experience in the Lord. And particularly when I say brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly when all involved are looking through the lens of the gospel with us. Derek Thomas, again, to quote him in his commentary, he says, Providence alone needs to be handled with great care. Jonah, think about this. He says, Jonah, for example, found a ship sailing in the very opposite direction from where God had called him. He could well have reasoned that God was guiding him when, in fact, he was disobeying the Lord's command. We may see the kind of visions Paul saw or hear literal voices speak to us, but the word of God in Scripture, together with his unfolding providence, are to be the guides that enable us to discern his will. We must reason just as Paul and his companions did, reaching careful conclusions in answer to questions such as these. Is this way lawful? Is it expedient? Does it help me grow as a Christian? Am I open to it because it is easier when in fact the more difficult might be what God wants me to do? These and many other questions like them are to be the focus of our deliberations in discovering God's will for us. Regardless of how the, the redirecting of their steps comes about, Paul and company are led westward by the sovereign God right into Europe. And, and to get really high altitude, it's out of Europe that the gospel would eventually reach North America. So praise God for the spirits leading in Acts 16 because that's part of your story. Verse 11 goes on to say, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remain in this city some days. Man, this is where it gets good, people. All right, if you remember your time with Shakespeare in grade school, some of us got along with him a little better than others of us. But I think we all maybe remember that when Julius Caesar was murdered by Brutus and Cassius, and then those dudes got murdered by a couple other guys named Mark Anthony and Octavian. Well, that second takedown happened in the city of Philippi. All right, connect your grade school literature to scripture. Philippi, we know a few things about Philippi. It was deeply rooted in Roman history and culture, um, from street design to architecture to even the, the imprints on coinage. It was a, as Roman as you could get without being Rome, you might say. It was considered a mini Rome. It was a coastal landing spot for many retired soldiers and wealthy families, the religious landscape, incredibly syncretistic, meaning that there were a pantheon of gods to be worshiped, just like uh, Lustra going back to Acts chapter 14. 
And verse 13 tells us, when they arrived in Philippi, on the Sabbath day, Luke says, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. You see, Paul kind of veered from his pattern here, right? He normally comes into a city and makes a beeline for the synagogue so that he can communicate the gospel to the Jewish people. But the problem is there's no synagogue in Philippi. You had to have a minimum of 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue, and apparently there's so little of a Jewish presence that a synagogue couldn't be established. Tells us something of the religious landscape of this city. And so in this Roman colony with no Jewish synagogue, Paul and company, who are uh, accustomed to making a beeline for the synagogue, they look for the next best thing. Any prayer meetings going on around here, maybe we can infiltrate And they find one down by the riverside where they proceed to share the gospel with a group of ladies. We're told in verse 14, I love this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here's what I love about Acts chapter 16. In, in, in a book in which we get so many stories of crowds coming to know and follow Jesus Christ, it's in Acts chapter 16 that we get a front row seat to three stories of personal conversion. We, we get a front row seat essentially to the core group gathering of a new church plan. First, you have this women's prayer meeting down by the riverside that Paul and his team interrupt where they encounter Lydia, the biblically famous seller of purple goods. Purple dye, which was obtained from a certain type of shellfish, was the only color fast dye in, in the ancient world. And so when you see like purple robes in, in uh, fairy tales, you know, with kings and queens, it, it goes back to this historically. Like if you had obtained, I don't know, yellow dye from a shellfish, then kings and queens would be robed in yellow in all of our children's books. But purple became a status symbol of royalty and wealth in the ancient world. And we're told that Lydia is in the purple business, basically, which means that she does pretty well for herself. She's a worshiper of God, we're told, but she still needs her heart open to receive the things of Christ, like the God-fearing Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. And so we're told that Paul and his team of missionaries meet her and her friends down by the riverside and they share the gospel with them. And in a supernatural work of God, Lydia's heart is open and she receives the gospel, putting her faith in Jesus, the first recorded conversion on European soil. Ladies, don't let anyone tell you that you do not have a significant place in the economy of God. Soon after, told that Lydia and her household are baptized and the first core group members of the church of Philippi are established. Verse 16 goes on to say, and as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The next addition to the core group, a demon-possessed slave girl. Could we get any different in contrast to Lydia, the seller of purple goods? 
You have a girl who's basically being tormented by an evil spirit and prostituted by her owners. A double dose of oppression. The, the, the word translated divination in the Greek is the word puthon, which is where we get our word python. The spirit of divination, that phrase could just as rightly be translated python spirit. The spirit of a python s. It was, it was believed that uh, Zeus had established a, a place where the gods could be consulted, what's known as an oracle, and, and that that sanctuary was believed to be guarded by a serpent named Python. So here in this nearby city of Philippi, some were thought to have the spirit of Python, when in fact they were possessed by demons who were feeding their possessors information about other people. As you might imagine, that set the stage for a nice little fortune-telling business in the city. I can tell you some things about you that you don't know which the demons have been listening in on your life and have now told me. By the way, fortune telling, a practice forbidden by God on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. If you're wondering how you should feel as you drive by little houses that have their signs out. This demon-possessed slave girl starts following Paul and his friends around the city, saying things that you probably wouldn't expect a demon-possessed person to say, right? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Like, is it possible to be a demon-possessed missionary? Like, what's going on here? That's weird, right? This is one of those situations in which it seems, it seems that Satan is trying to keep his friends close and his enemies closer. Maybe attempting to distort the message of the gospel by having demons associate with its proclamation. Maybe trying to intermingle the gospel message with a pantheon of Greek gods as if the God of Israel can be lumped in with the gods empowering the spirit of Python. They go together, pluralism, buy into both. And so Paul commands the demon in the name of the purity of the gospel message to come out of that girl in the name of Jesus and also because he's just annoyed, right? And the demon has no choice in the matter because Jesus is the great dragon slayer, the great serpent crusher. He's the one who rebuked demons throughout his public ministry. He's the one who delivered the death blow to the devil of hell through his death and resurrection. He's the one who continues to show himself greater than the serpents of evil here in Acts chapter 16. And he will show himself finally to be greater than the great serpent, the devil, when he throws him into the lake of fire in the day to come. We have no reason to believe, coming back to the story, that the slave girl was not only delivered from demons, but to Jesus, like the garrison demoniac in Mark chapter five. No longer, think about this, no longer a prostitute, but a bride. No longer, I'm gonna choke up there. No longer indwelt by demons, but the Holy Spirit. Pretty diverse core group already, Right? Tony Morita in his commentary says this about Lydia and the demon-possessed slave girl. He says, contrast these two conversions. Lydia is wealthy. Slave girl is poor. Lydia is a community member of high standing. The slave girl is exploited and abused. Lydia is religious and moral. The slave girl is broken and tormented. Lydia comes to faith through a quiet Bible study. The slave girl gets transformed through a dramatic power encounter. Lydia was presented with Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. The slave girl met Jesus as the mighty deliverer. These two different ladies, he says, both were brought to faith in Jesus, a reminder that the gospel can transform all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. The power that brought the evil spirit out of this girl is the same power that opened Lydia's heart. It's the power of Jesus. 
as you can imagine, which we've seen happen before when things like this unfold, chaos ensues. Those who have been making a profit off of this young girl are not real happy about her deliverance. Right? We're told in verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd, we're told, joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. The owners of this formerly demon-possessed girl dragged Paul and Silas before the local magistrates where they bring a bunch of trumped-up charges against these men, just like the religious leaders with Jesus, right? And the magistrates have Paul and Silas severely beaten and imprisoned prior to any sort of fair hearing. And we're told that upon being imprisoned, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Going back to to Acts chapter 12, maybe you remember Peter so filled with the peace of Christ that he could somehow sleep soundly on the night of his execution. Well, here in Acts 16, you have Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to the Lord, overwhelmed with the Spirit's presence in the midst of suffering and likely execution to come, evangelizing the other prisoners with their Christ-exalting song. And we're told that right in the middle of their praise and worship session, God brings about an earthquake that shakes the very foundations of the prison itself. Let me ask, is anyone who's been around for much of this series surprised, really? Like, we've seen this kind of thing before in the book of Acts, right? God miraculously breaking his unfairly imprisoned men right out of the county jail. That's what God loves to do. And verse 27 tells us, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, you can just imagine his eyes, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Ready to to fall on his sword, assuming that his failure to keep those under his watch imprisoned are a death sentence pronounced upon him in and of itself. If you didn't hang on to your prisoners, execution was coming for you. And so he saw ahead and he decided, I'm gonna do the the easier, maybe more noble thing. I don't know what ran through his mind, but falling on the sword is the best decision in this moment. And verse 28 tells us, notice the compassion and grace of God. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Like, I gotta see this. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. In the Philippian jailer, we get a really beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man having come to the end of his rope, 
fully aware of the sentence of death that rests upon him, the wages of his failure to guard Paul and Silas and the others, knowing that there's nothing he can do to right the wrong. And what does Paul say? Essentially, good thing it's not about what you do or don't do, brother. It's about believing in Jesus and what he's done. That faith is a sign of helplessness. It's a declarative, Jesus did what I could never do. He lived the sinless life that I could never live. He bore sin's curse of death that was mine to bear. He rose from the grave in triumphant victory over my sin. In him, I stake my entire eternity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you come in this morning looking for answers to the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be in right standing with God? The answer is not right all of your wrongs. The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, has righted all of your wrongs on your behalf. And you can believe right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's exactly what the Philippian jailer does along with his entire family. And immediately we see the evidence of the indwelling spirit, do we not? As the jailer not only takes the first step of obedience to Jesus and being baptized, but he also feeds Paul and Silas and washes their wounds. I love the way um, early church father John Chrysostom says it. He says about the Philippian jailer, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sins. That where he once treated Paul and Silas as prisoners, he now treats them as brothers because that's what the gospel does. The gospel has the power to create a new family where there once was not a family. And we see that moving on into the final verses of this morning's passage, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, interestingly, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. Let them come themselves and take us out. That's a bold brother. And we're told that the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. Who's got the power here? They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. As a Roman citizen, Paul not only has the right to a fair trial, but the right to appeal to even Caesar himself, which is exactly what will eventually lead the apostle Paul and ultimately the gospel message to the city of Rome, the perceived end of the earth. The God's at work in all of the details here. Paul refuses to be released discreetly. He wants to make sure that the record's set straight publicly, probably for the good of the church, to show that the church isn't a threat to the city that Paul and Silas didn't do anything wrong here. And so the the magistrates come and they publicly apologize to Paul and Silas and release them from their shackles. And we're told that before leaving town, they go to Lydia's house for what appears to be a core group gathering of this new church. How cool is that? Like, can you imagine that? The first Christian church on European soil and you're seeing it with your very own eyes right here. And what did the core group look like? You kind of think church history, huh? 
How would God want to go about planting the first church on European soil? Surely he would want to grab just a bunch of people of great power and influence. In youth ministry, they used to be called uh, key kids. If you can grab the key kids, captain of the football team, you know, like those type of people, you can build the youth group that way. What does God do here? He says, here's the core group I'm gonna plant. How about a wealthy lady and her friends, a recently demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer? How's that for the grace of God? Which leads me to, to two final thoughts this morning. The first has to do with the church as a community. The second has to do with our mission. Communally speaking, first of all, you would expect the church in Philippi to be the church of greatest dysfunction moving forward, right? This is the church you should be writing the first Corinthians letter to, you would think. How in the world are these guys gonna get along? What is this gonna look like? You imagine that community group? And yet, yet, it's actually the church in Philippi that Paul most praises for their faithfulness sending them a letter on their 10-year birthday that's filled with encouraging words. Just go read the book of Philippians. For those of us who understand the grace of God to be the fuel for brotherly love and unity, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? That if those in Philippi wanted to be reminded of the lavish grace of God, all they had to do was open their eyes. Right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the religious and content Right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the tormented and enslaved. And right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the hopeless and despairing. Do you realize that that same glorious grace is in front of us right now? Do you realize that? I've heard many of your stories in this room of coming to Christ, not one of them a cookie cutter version of the others. And yet the one and same Jesus Christ, the hero of every one of those stories. Hey, it's one thing to sit in the crowds in the book of Acts and to kind of have this, this mindset of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But what God is doing in Acts chapter 16 is showing us that yes, for God so loved the world, but also Jesus loves me, this I know. Like God has your name imprinted on the palm of his hands. Your name is written on his heart, we sing. There's a name in Acts 16, Lydia. Like, God didn't just think, I'm gonna take the gospel to Europe in blast with sort of this generalized idea of, that looks like a good place where I can get a lot of glory. But rather, he had individuals with names on his mind. I'm coming for Lydia. I'm coming for the, the demon-possessed slave girl. I'm coming for the Philippian jailer. And if you're a Christian, he's come for you by name. He knows you by name. Just look around. Surrounded by walking miracles of God. Filling this room as we speak. The family of the redeemed, saved by sheer grace. My prayer is that God would help us see and that that might fuel us to love and serve one another all the more so that on our 10-year birthday, people could write a letter to us like Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Missionally speaking, we, we talk a lot as a church about this idea of being a missionary in your neighborhood, in your workplace, 
among your friends and your family members. And all that right and good, but I think what can get lost in that is just like the crowds in the book of Acts, it can become this just generalized enough idea of what it means to to live as a missionary that we miss the individuals and the names associated with those environments. That, That your workplace is filled with people who have names and lives and God has them on the brain and he wants to use you Like you're the apostle Paul here. You're the Silas in the story now. As you go out and you tell those people the good news of Jesus Christ in your neighborhood. It's not just a bunch of houses with a bunch of faceless, nameless people. But those people have names just like Lydia. And some of them need Jesus. And God wants to use you to point them to Jesus. Among your friends, among your family members. May may that language of friendships and family and workplace and neighborhoods not not miss the point that these are real people. We serve a God whose grace is big enough for the Lydias of this world, those who believe in God but have yet to have their hearts awakened to the beauty of Christ. They're all around us in this religious landscape. We serve a God whose grace is big enough for the tormented slave girls of this world, the oppressed and abused, the hurting and the broken And yeah, you gotta dig a little in our community to find those people because they're hiding behind four walls and nicely manicured lawns, but they're here, I promise you. And maybe maybe you're that person. We serve a God whose grace is big enough for the Philippian jailers of this world, those whose lives are coming unraveled at the seams, those who are perhaps even despairing of life itself. And let me tell you, like that's one that God will use in our context because there are many in our context who will not see Jesus for the beauty that he is until their lives come unraveled, like the Philippian jailer. And then we get to enter in and sing hymns and songs to God and let them listen in on the song of the gospel and point them to Jesus. And so I ask you as we close this morning, who has God brought into your life that he might be preparing for a gospel awakening? And I'm not just talking a, a generalized environment, I'm talking name, I'm talking face. Let me ask it this way. Who might the next member of our core group be? I think we can still classify as a church plant. We're six years old, but I think we can get away with it. Who might the next member of our core group be? Because the truth is we all have a mission field and as drastically different as our mission fields may be, we're all ambassadors of the same glorious gospel of grace, a grace that you and I, if you're a Christian, know firsthand in Christ Jesus. Amen. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a a few different ways as we do week in and week out through communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing Christ's broken body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just invite you to to soak in the wonder of, of this childlike Jesus loves me, this I know. Like your name, your name is graven on his hands, Christian. Stop and pause and soak in that before you come and receive the elements. There will be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you'd like prayer. Whether it be because you're going, man, I think I see God, but I'm not sure I've seen the beauty of Christ. Like, Lydia, I need my heart opened. Or I feel oppressed, been abused along the way. Like, for somebody to pray with and for me. Or everything's come unraveled for me. And that's Christian and non-Christian alike be people available to pray with you and then we're gonna sing to this glorious God of grace 
in these moments to come together. And I pray that our song would be, and I believe it will be just as sweet as Paul and Silas in that prison.